Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. How about we make a little time for some reports from the field? Bodhisattvas, some Bodhisattva reports from the field. How's it been going for the last month? How's it been going working with working with your precept or any observations from your learning record? Anything you're noticing? Anything you'd like to share or ask? Yes, Joan. You're still muted, Joan. Okay. Yep, we got you now. I've had a very difficult time with my older son. It was partly situational, but then it turns out it's a pattern that's gone on for a long time. He wouldn't get vaccinated and I got very upset. And uh, it was a really hard time between us because he's a grown man. He's 57 years old and I should just trust him or honor him. And so we both had to go off in separate directions and not talk to each other for quite a while. And I worked with a counselor and he worked with his counselor. And I know what I came to with the help of the counselor who said, for heaven's sakes, he's a grown man. But trying to be, you know, run his life. And I, I began to be, I was, became a listener. And it's been the beginning of a new relationship and something I didn't think could happen. It was very painful, but I also realized that going through it together was the only way to get through it. And so it's been a really uh, something real for me to live through. And I think it's related to the precepts. Listening to someone else. And what I've been looking at recently is the part about not holding to so someone to something they've done one time. Each time you meet is a new beginning. So that's what I've gotten so far. Thank you for sharing. I think that's uh, going to be an excellent, excellent introduction to meeting others with openness and possibility. Welcome, Lisa. We're just we're doing reports from the field. So anything anyone would like to share about the work they've done over the last month or observations from the learning record or anything. I'll share something. All so, right. Um, hi. So, hi, uh, this uh, this month I started seeing a therapist, which is amazing, um, and it's just something I've wanted to do for a long time. I have a lot of stuff to work out. Obviously, we all do, and uh, you know, I'm finally in a position in my life where I have time to devote to it. I have, you know, my insurance covers it, so I thought, why not? And 
it actually was um this was sort of like a perfect way for me to to talk to her as an introduction telling her that i'm doing this program and that we were starting uh with truths right with telling truths and um and that one of the points in that first chapter that we read was about how truth uh you know we how we tell ourselves untruths as well right and so um as as i'm getting into therapy now uh i find that this is actually a really helpful prompt for me as i sit down and start to work through things because i have to keep asking myself am i telling myself the truth is this is did this really is this who i am is this what my challenges are this is this how i really feel and it's really picking it apart but it's just such a beautiful sort of unexpected pairing of learning these precepts and then doing this self-examination work with a therapist and um it's actually it's been fruitful already and and lovely it sounds lovely uh, flint always talked about this process or the process of um, buddhist practice and therapeutic work like a, the double helix of a spiral that were intertwined and stair-stepped together and that together it was a process of waking up and growing up that's really so, cool i didn't know that yeah yeah uh, you have to be awake in order to see what's going on and what you're doing so um but if you're not doing anything with that newfound attention and ability for insight, you know, it's not going anywhere. So the two do go hand in hand very well. Okay, I guess there are no other reports for this week, so we will jump in. <clears throat> um, Todd, I'll, I'll offer one. Okay. So um, in the um, section on uh, the precept of following the path of the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility, um, I, um, in my learning record, I actually didn't fill out the whole thing, but this is what came to me. A friend um, that I have is um, challenging for me in that she's um, uh, someone who um, complains a lot. Um, and um, I find myself pretty frustrated with her a lot. And um, as I was writing about this, I realized that part of it had to do with some envy that I had for her, thinking that her life was, you know, like easier than mine. And, um, but there are these aspects that are, that have been frustrating for me. So as I was reading along in the chapter of, um, to um, sort of start with your connection with a person like this, to see them as a stranger, I thought, oh, that's interesting. This dead spot would sort of be like who my friend has been since I've seen her last. So like, who is she in this moment? And um, that was kind of um, liberating in a way because uh, we have a plan to get together and I thinking, well, how will I deal with this few hours that I'll be with her? And I actually thought of something nice to do um, 
that um, we could do together. And um, also I began to think of some really, really wonderful things that she gave to me, um, including letting me know about the wonderful apartment that I have, which is kind of, a, it's like a secret building in my area that people don't really know about. And I would never have discovered it without this friend. And a few things, you know, really, really important things like that. At any rate, so this idea of starting from now um, with someone um, that could be difficult was really, really helpful in um, meeting my friend where she might be in the moment that I next see her. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, just that one practice of remembering that you may not know, right? That the person may be different this time, right? And just being curious can really change the whole field. You know, your your internal world and your internal field about how you're thinking about the person and how you're meeting them. And that in and of itself, you know, can shift the whole relationship because they aren't meeting the same person they met when they last saw you, right? Because you're different, right? You're just in that moment a bit different. So it's a great experiment to do. Cost nothing. And uh, we learn a lot. So thank you for sharing. I think it's great when people decide to speak up and, and give us little bits of insight and things that they've noticed. Um, spiritual friendship is one of the most important things on the path, uh, just for that reason, because you're probably not going to run into other people that you just have the occasion to talk about the precepts to right? in daily life. So depends on your kind of friends, I guess. Yes, Fabienne. Yes, Todd, um, I realized that I go from one extreme to the other. That's what I realized uh, when I, I paid attention this month. Either I'm quiet and I don't say anything, even if I want to say something, and I think it's by fear of being rejected, so I prefer to be silent. Yeah. Or then some other time, I'm going to be part of a conversation and add something just to be accepted by the people. But I feel like what I'm saying, I mean, like I caught myself the other week saying, oh, if you notice how much she had put on weight and I'm like, what on earth went through my mind? Why did I need to say that? It's so, and then something funny, um, well, not funny, but I realized when I was writing about the precept tonight, there was one person to who I, I have no fear of being rejected or I don't hide anything, and it's my son. And to the point that when I was writing, I felt like sometimes when I talk to him, like, so I, like, all the last months I've been really careful when I, I felt like most of the time I was careful when I was talking or, or was reflecting afterwards when I say something like about the lady put on weight. But I realized that when I talk to my son and I'm not scared to be rejected or I don't try to, to be accepted by him because 
I don't know. It's like he, he, he accept me, yeah, for who I am. And I realized when I was writing, it's like I lose, I lose that perspective. I'm not reflecting on on the way I'm talking about certain stuff with him. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like I'm losing a certain kind of awareness. And it's not that I don't care about the whole talk. That's all the opposite. But I feel like I wasn't aware when I was talking to him the way I was to other people of other situation. That's what came out of the writing tonight. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. And congratulations on noticing you're commenting about other people, right? Because most people <laughs> would just make the comment and not even realize, oh, I just did that, right? So. It, yeah, it was, uh, it was really uh, good for me. It brought me, uh, I learned a lot about myself by doing those exercises. Mm. And I, I know that uh, I told you myself about the learning record the first month because it had to be done perfectly. And I realized now that I'm not always filling out all the boxes, but I have more question of what the situation raised to me. Like, did I do that because I wanted to be accepted or things like that, so. I really enjoy the, like the white, even if it's sometimes it has bumps. Right, right. Thank you. Just out of curiosity, did anyone, uh, did anyone have a moment when they maybe realized or felt like, my gosh, I had no idea how often I tell little fibs? Hmm. I see a head nod, one head nod, a few. I had that that uh, when I went through the precepts class, it was like a uh, almost a panic, like when you started realizing how often you did it throughout the day, just constantly. Well, maybe it was just me, but <laughs> constantly uh, stretched the truth, gave half truths, and fibbed a bit. So it was very, very eye opening to start to see what we were act, what I was actually doing. Joan. Well, I had an experience with a friend. Um, I found her really unpleasant to be with because anything we talked about, she would complain. And so uh, I've avoided her and she can see that. So my way of dealing with it is to not be with her because I don't know how to do anything with it when I'm with her. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is a little funny, but I, I thought that I might give my friend a list of, of um, acceptable topics that she could. <laughs> <laughs> of course I won't, but that was a little fantasy. Yeah. That's a fun one. The other thing I realized that she's talking about, she's got some real painful things in her life. And I don't know how to, I don't want to get into those with her. A son who's bipolar and his wife won't let him talk, you know, things that are really painful, but I can't be part of that, I don't think. 
I had a similar experience this month. I have a group of friends that, um, in our case, this is, you know, it's not, uh, it's not meaty conversation, we'll put it that way. So it's my, my golfing group. And there's a couple people in there who have a tendency of just wanting to complain about the situation, right? which we all, you know, I have that tendency as well. We all do. Um, <clears throat> and that topic came up. And uh, my only comment was um, that I said out loud was, I've just really noticed the kind of state of mind it puts me in when I'm complaining. And I don't want that for myself. And that's what I told them. And that's, that's true. When I've noticed I complain, and when you're in complaining mind, it has, it activates the body in a certain way, right? Gets your head spinning. Uh, it's just not what I want for myself. So that's what I shared. Don't know if that helped or not. <laughs> Might get me kicked out of the group. <clears throat> okay. So, Rosetto. This month, we are on it's chapter six, I think. Speaking of others with openness and possibility. Chapter six. We take up the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility. Um, also, sometimes this precept is known as not discussing the faults of others. Hmm, sounds like we, we already had that topic going here tonight. <clears throat> not discussing the faults of others. So um, maybe first it's helpful to just talk about what is instead of describing positively what this is, kind of do the opposite, right? What, what is um, the wrong way to go about this? What are examples when you're not doing this? There's gossip, right? Blaming, judgment, complaints can be it as well. All right, so it's easy to see kind of what the, the negative aspect of this is. And um, I thought they, that Diane does a good job in the opening of the chapter talking about kind of the human condition and how we're pre-wired um, socially with our relationships to our friends, relatives, and neighbors to form these in-groups and out-groups. And that uh, it's a social bonding thing, right? When we sit around and we talk about the others who aren't there, the out group, whether it's, you know, uh, another group of friends, nationalities, races, political ideologies. There's a lot of that going around these days. It strengthens the bonds of the people that are there in the group, right? They kind of affirm that we're this way and the others are not, right? So it's, it's a well-known uh, psychological tendency called in-group and out-group behavior, right? Uh, and so it has, it, uh, it has a certain, what's the word I'm looking for, um, result in, in human groups. And so it's, uh, you know, it's easy to explain this social bonding. We attempt to strengthen the bonds in the group 
by commenting on people who aren't in the group. <clears throat> All right, so that's a very good example. And uh, one that I'm sure everyone can relate to. Another is gossip, right? Uh, <clears throat> talking about those who aren't there. Um, and she goes on to talk about that, you know, speaking of others, right, or speaking of um, the weaknesses of others is not necessarily gossip. It can also be conveying useful information that's required or applicable, right? Um, here's an example. Oh, he's going to drive you home tonight? Did you know that he's an alcoholic? Right? That, that's not gossip. That's Ooh, that's a fact that you may want to know. Doesn't mean he's drunk tonight. <clears throat> right, so there's a way that we can speak of others. We can speak of even their, uh, we won't use the faults, but their own, you know, human weaknesses or tendencies without it being uh, in-group, out-group behavior, without it being gossip. Or another example, um, like at work, oh, well, so-and-so has demonstrated in the past that she doesn't know that system or how to use it. You, know, you might want to find someone who's trained, or you might want to get her some help, right? That's conveying a fact about someone's experience, right, or their, their um, education or training. So the alternative to uh, this in-group and out-group talking is what Diane calls standing alone, right? To stand alone in your disagreement or stand alone in your situation. And she's not saying to you know, not talk to a trusted advisor or to use someone as, as a, stand, a sounding board, but the point she's trying to make is um, not to use vent, right? Or not to use this in-group or out-group uh, behavior as a crutch. Conveying information is okay. It's the judgment that starts to get to be an issue. And one way I like to remember it is that, you know, information is one thing, but thinking the person is what they did is another thing entirely, like turning it into a, a character statement, right? Um, it's not that she was late, right? That's very different than, you know, she is incapable of being on time or you know, insert your own personal judgment there. So we can acknowledge a person's strengths or weaknesses, you know, teacher and student, peer reviews, performance reviews at work, um, two parents discussing how to help their teenager mature, right? We can acknowledge strengths and weaknesses um, without it being talking of the faults of others.
And a key topic that Diane goes into is our personal investment, right? Which gets at what the intentions are behind our words. And I'll read for you for a bit here on page 67. Personal investment is a way to think about the intention of our words. This is what really matters. We can respond to an inquiry with openness, shade the information with a bit of judgment, or leave out all the information and present not a fact, but a criticism of that person. We may think that we are being direct and honest, but if we are unaware of our intention, even in communicating a simple fact, a subtle voice inflection can turn a communication of the fact into a subtle put down. It may be very important to communicate the fact that a person's actions have been harmful to others. It's another thing, however, to freeze our view of that person by speaking of him as if that is his permanent way of being. All right, so it's really important that we distinguish you know, individual actions and try and not let ourselves go down that slope of turning it into um, a, you know, a solidified, fixed view of someone, right? This is the, the meeting the stranger, or as Joan was saying, beginning to, to listen openly. Rosemary's an excellent example of what it was like to meet the same old friend, right, with a new mind, right? One that's open. So we have to be careful of our personal investment of what we think we're gonna get out of it, right? And that can be a very good inquiry for yourself. You know, if you do a learning record observation of uh, you know, a time when you catch yourself speaking of the faults of others or not being open with them, to, to try and ask yourself questions about what you get out of it. What you not only what you get out of it, but what your personal investment or goal may be. They can be very enlightening. Now, and another, another important point is that um, while we say that the precept is I take the way of speaking of others with openness and possibility, we aren't just talking about verbal speech here, right? The speaking of others um, can point to our unspoken fault finding, the unspoken fault finding conversations we have in our own head. Right? While no one else can hear them, you're wearing the same groove, the same track in your mind, you're just doing it quietly, right? So it's really no different. So in a broader view, the precept is really inviting us to meet others with openness and possibility. It's really not the speaking of others. It's almost like the speaking of others is a symptom of how you meet others, right? It's if you meet someone with openness, you're probably not going to speak of, of them, you know, in a closed-minded way. So really, 
we're invited to meet others with openness and possibility. <clears throat> so the key word is open. Right? To me, in this precept, the key word is open, openness, <clears throat> the opposite of closed, not shut down. Your mind is not made up. We cannot freeze our views of others, right? An interesting little trick or an interesting experiment is to ask yourself, I wonder what they're going to be like this time. I wonder if they're going to be the same this time. Right? So and so, that, that, that friend that we were talking about who complains all the time, when you see them in the hall, you could think, well, oh, I wonder if today will be different. Let's see how it goes. Right? It's being open. Um, this is especially true, especially difficult and challenging with our close relationships, right? The ones that have the well-worn grooves where we're you know, absolutely sure we know how they're going to react, right? Whether we think that consciously or not, we just we know how they're going to react. We know how they are. Having the thought, I wonder what she is actually going to say. And that one was very useful for me when I would be in the middle of conversation and I would find myself going, uh, you know, about to do an eye roll. Oh, here we go. Nope. Stop that. And try and replace it with, I wonder what she's going to say next. And then you, you try and be like the cat watching the mouse hole. See what comes out. Is it a complaint? You know, you don't know. If that's the dead spot, right? And Rosemary that we were talking about, right? You kind of hang there in limbo. I don't know. I don't know. I wonder what's going to happen next. That is the openness and possibility. Um, I'm pausing there because you look like Rosemary looks like she's about to say something. I was just wondering whether, um, I don't know that there's an answer to this, whether our openness with you know a, a friend that that you know is we found difficult if if that could affect their own um openness to how they are oh absolutely yeah i think i think there's no dis, there's no way to separate the person from the interaction right and when you change one side of the interaction you change both people whether or not that's consequential or not, it's another story. But, you know, you put your thumb on the scale every time. Right. Act, right. And especially in those interactions that you know how you put your thumb down at the same way every time and you know how it goes every time, it can be really interesting to just try something else. Had that experience recently. Um, I'm a co-treasurer for this nonprofit organization, and it's comprised of volunteers, but they're volunteers from all walks of life. And um, the way we had divvied up responsibilities, 
I'd been making an Excel sheet and paying bills online. And this other person had been making cash deposits at the bank, except in this particular case, they weren't making cash deposits at the bank. They were holding the cash in their home for weeks at a time. <laughs> so it became this huge controversy within this organization. And, um, you know, I, I found myself approached by a lot of people who were expressing concern for good reason. And certainly in some cases, I um, jumped on board with um, the criticism or at least took some glee in humorous comments that were made at this other person's expense. And, um, but I also had the experience where um, I tried to approach him in a way that, um, where I really was giving him the honest benefit of the doubt and trying to communicate openly um, as I would in a fresh new interaction where we didn't have any negative history already. And I found I got a completely different reaction. Um, so that was, that was a real shift. Um, and it's, it's certainly, it certainly felt better for me. That's all I have to say. Yeah, I noticed that too. That goes back to knowing what you want for yourself, right? And once you understand how much better you can feel by meeting others openly, I find myself wanting that a lot more. Intending to do it more. Thank you for sharing. So the key word is open. It's this don't know mind. Uh, I think Peg's the one I always used to say that, that curiosity is the universal solvent. Or was that something in the book? I don't remember where I wrote it down, but curiosity is the universal solvent as a way of breaking things down, that curious mind, and allowing things to flow with a bit more ease. One of my favorite mantras that I used when trying to meet others with openness and possibility is two little words that I would just add to the end of my complaint or gripe or whatever. Not yet, right? Maybe not the end, but instead of saying here, you know, so-and-so can't do this or doesn't see this, it's they don't yet see, not yet. It's just, it's a little reminder that I gave to myself that, okay, maybe in this moment, they don't yet see it openly, right? But it's a reminder that take a breath, see how it is in the next moment not to try and solidify people into um, this is how they always are. This is how they always will be, right? So if there is something that, that you think is lacking, just remember that it's, it might be lacking now 
So again, this isn't just about speech. Um, you know, are we thinking he is such a so-and-so? Right? We're we're speaking it to ourselves in our own mind. It's the same thing. And in meeting others with openness and possibility, you know, we do it with our whole bodies. Uh, how are we standing? Which direction are you facing? You know, are your arms crossed? Are you looking them in the eye? You know, are you giving them your full attention? Meeting others with openness and possibility is not just about our mental views. Right? It's about your body. And I think I already gave the example last week where I was talking about how I, I noticed that um, um, with certain people, especially when I didn't feel like I was on equal ground with them, um, in, in actual, you know, in real life encounters, I wouldn't turn towards them. You know, I would be talking to someone, but I would keep like shoulder to shoulder, kind of look out the corner of my eye. And I had to start learning to make an effort that when someone approached me or I was interacting to actually turn towards them, literally, it was hard at first, but it was one of those little shifts that made a very big difference. I don't think to them as much as it did to me because I stopped and I faced them and I met them regardless of what you know, I thought when they were approaching. So just remember, this isn't something you just do with speech. This isn't something that you just do with your thoughts, right? Like everything else in Zen, it's an embodied practice. So look for the ways that you meet or don't meet people with your bodies as well. <clears throat> meeting the stranger so one of the one of the sections in the book right that we were talking about earlier is learning to meet others as a stranger we need to be like anthropologists right we don't understand these people or their customs Right? We can be open to try and learn how do they talk? What words do they use? How do they position their bodies? Right? What are they conveying to us? Right? And this is just exercising that, that uh, open mind muscle, right? the practice of trying to actively not know. We're trying to retrain ourselves to actively not know. Just as a little practice to, to make it a bit more like second nature. Diane says, when we meet others as strangers, our hearts are open to possibility, change, and reconciliation. We haven't decided what one another is and only know that person as she presents herself in this very moment. Yesterday, you may have exchanged a few harsh words and thought her disagreeable, but today, in this moment, where is disagreeable? I like to think of our fault finding as tinted glasses, obscuring a clear view of who or what we meet at any given time. If you meet that person with the words of yesterday echoing in your mind, 
and your glasses are tinted, disagreeable. You cannot meet the other as a stranger. How do we assume or not assume that a person has changed since yesterday? As long as we insist on seeing him through our memories, those glasses will not allow us to meet him openly and with possibility. Seeing them through our memories. Isn't that a great line? Seeing them through our memories. So she goes on. Okay. That's a great theory. How? How do you go about this? To meet others as strangers, we have to enter the gap of not knowing, the dead spot. Because we hang in suspended judgment as we face the other person. I'm sorry, that's the end of this dead spot. That's why. Because there we hang in suspended judgment as we face the other person. If we have this person figured out, we don't have to experience what it might feel like to be in the gap, not knowing. And when we gossip, we assure ourselves that we don't have to be alone in what we feel. This is the paradox of this precept. In order to truly know someone, we have to be open to the possibility of change and admit that we can only truly know that person in the present moment. Okay. So then she goes into the practice, um, stopping and taking inventory, take a week to begin, to begin noticing the obvious and subtle ways that you talk about others overtly, surreptitiously, covertly, keep a journal. And we talked about the process last week. Learning record observations are good for this right, during this next month. You can um, look for little instances where you uh, don't meet others with openness and possibility. <clears throat> look and listen, try and focus in on how it happens, when it happens, or there are particular circumstances that reoccur. And try and uh, document your experience. You know, your emotions, your bodily sensations. All right. Thoughts? Questions, comments about meeting others with openness and possibility? Yes, Mitch. Yeah, one thing that comes up for me is like when I see hey, myself doing and others doing, it's instead of being open, you stereotype somebody. You see somebody and they look a certain way. So you get you have your preconceptions about, oh, they're gonna they're gonna be this certain way. And that's just the, the opposite, I think, of being open to someone. 
Uh, so I know I fight with that. I fight with that, and when it, when, uh, I try to. If I see somebody, if they're well dressed or they're not well dressed, or they're, uh, unkempt, you know, I have to say, put that aside and go. Well, what, you know, just listen. What, what are they going to? You know, what are they actually going to say? And don't. If I'm not if I'm not careful, I could even turn what they say to try to make it uh, comply with my preconception. Uh, you know, I think I have to fight that and make sure I don't do that. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, um, it's so easy for us to cherry pick out little observations to prove ourselves that our stereotype or our preconceived notion was right. And we just go on with our day. And I would think you in particular have a very challenging job <laughs> as far as the practice you're describing. So if, if you guys don't know, Mitch is a judge. Very challenging. You get, I'm sure you get many opportunities for that kind of thing. Yeah, yes, it comes, up, comes up all the time. So. Yeah. But I feel it's the same way for a teacher. Every day when he or she stands up in the class in front of the classroom, if he goes or if she goes back with what happened yesterday, the day is already worn or it's already challenging. I feel like you have to go with an open mind every day and live yesterday into yesterday and really be in the present moment. And also don't look at the kids with what happened previously because you don't know what happened outside the school and you have to stay open mind, otherwise it doesn't work. Yes, thank you. Any other thoughts or comments? Yes, John. Well, I live in a senior community and we've been really closed down. So our opportunities are, you know, we try to keep them minimal instead of being with groups of people. But also there are two levels. There are people who work here and are, you know, have jobs working for us, caring for us. And so our relationships in those cases are on a different way. They're not social, but I, when I asked Flint about it one time, he said, be sure that you look at someone directly and you ask them their name and you call them by name. So they're individuals and that I can do. But I mean, so many people have moved in here and we've not gotten acquainted because we're so distant. It's, you know, it's not the situation that I've had before and uh, it's really restricted much, pretty much. Our communication with our family is via FaceTime or Zoom or something. So I don't know that how this affects us. I know that 
in some ways what you're talking about. I don't want to make myself vulnerable to someone. That's a good observation. Yeah. I mean, somebody who might need some help or something, I just don't feel like I'm there. Mm-hmm. And that's a defense. I have to I'll think about that, I guess. Yeah, that would be a good one to work with this month. Can you meet someone openly, right, without necessarily having to get in to give into what they want or having to be vulnerable, right? What does it mean to to be open to them and still respect your own need for personal protection? Well, I've chosen at this point to spend my time and my care for my husband who's 92. And so we got a lot of little things to deal with. And so that's where time is going. But there's a lot to look at. Mm-hmm. As I said, we went to this, we have been through this major thing with our son, which is really a major thing. Yeah, there's a lot. There's it's a it's a very deep topic. A lot of rich opportunity mm-hmm. to learn about ourselves mostly um, but at the same time you meet lots of new and interesting people maybe ones you already knew before i wanted i wanted to say to joan that um it sounds like in this therapy with your son it sounds like you're doing exactly what the precept is saying you know that you you found a way with a helper, you know, the therapist to um, um, start fresh, kind of. Thank you. That's true. And I mean, I just keep thinking, well, I should do that all the time. But that was a pretty major one. We'll just go with that for a little while. (laughs) Thank you. Here's one last quote, quote that I wrote down. A so-called fault. Uh, yes. Somebody else was, had her hand up. Here. Oh, I was missing someone. Who, who is yeah. that? Oh, Lisa, you're muted. Um, I've had a lot of struggles lately in my work with some relationships things, and it's, it's, it's not all that involved and complicated, but I... I I'm kind of resonating with what Joan and Rosemary are saying. One thing that's freed me up a little bit, and I think it came from reading the chapter in Rosado on um, honesty, is like I'm trying to find a new office mate to share my office because I'm not in here enough to warrant paying a full price for it. And um, I had agreed for someone to come in here and just had anxiety that went through the roof and I wasn't I'm not used to that and um, 
I finally decided the only thing I could do was be honest with this person and just say, I'm going to have to step back for a little while because my anxiety has hit the roof. I don't know why. I need to try to understand it a little better. I, I think I felt a little freer in the last month or two. All I need to do is be honest and not cruelly honest. I, you know, I don't, I don't recommend that. But, um, and I guess it's, it's being vulnerable because clearly I didn't present myself in the best light by saying, you know, my anxiety is through the roof here. But it seemed to be appreciated on the other side. I thank you for just being honest about what you're going through and why I haven't heard from you. And then um, I don't feel like I have to show up in any way other than, which I think is a problem I've had for many years, is just not being able to be present with someone else with my truth about what I'm experiencing right now. So it's been helpful to say that's really all I have to do is just be honest about what I'm experiencing in this situation in a kind way, obviously. And I don't think anyone in this on this screen is not a kind person, probably at heart and wouldn't do that. So okay, that's all. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great uh, example. I think it's such a great practice when we can, uh, when all else fails, right, just to narrate our own experience about what's really happening to us, you know, in those difficult situations. Oh, I don't know what to do or say. I just find myself confused or I just find myself anxious. And you can stop right there. And it's just admitting something that, you know, where you are and see where it goes from there. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very useful tool and it can be very, it can shift the whole dynamic just by admitting where we're at. Thank you. Okay. I, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, Amanda. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I had a really interesting experience this week. So a few months ago, a friend of mine who's a photographer. Can I, can I, can I interrupt you? Can you get your mic a little closer to your mouth, maybe? Can you hear me better now? Cool. Okay. So um, a couple of months ago, this photographer friend said, I, I want to take pictures of you, you know, portraits and use them in my business or whatever and uh and and she said and then you can use them right you can use the photos however you want and I was like okay so I went and I did it and it took forever like she like this was in the spring but uh she texted me this weekend and she's like uh oh I, I want to give you these these photos can I uh will you pay are you gonna pay for the retouching right like because clearly I need some <laughs> and she was like and I was I was surprised because I don't I didn't remember that conversation right and I said like I, I was like why are you asking me for money like, in my mind I'm like and I was really defensive I was like why is she asking me for money she never mentioned money at all and then um I sat with it for a long time and she she texted me again that evening she's like did you see my last message and then I was like oh my god what do I do and my you know my inclination generally would be to just send the money, right? It was, I was a hundred dollars, like just send the money or whatever. And, um, and I, I decided, no, <laughs> I'm, I, I need to just be honest, right? I need to just be open and like say what I'm 
feel. So I texted her back and I'm like, yeah, I'm surprised by this. I didn't think that you were going to charge me anything. Anyway, long story short, the whole uh, back and forth, we there was a misunderstanding. There was like all of this stuff. I'm using the photos. I gave her some compensation. It was all worked out in the end. And I felt so much better because if I, if I hadn't done that, which it's so scary, right? When, like, when you have to tell somebody honestly that you disagree with them, right? And I, I mean, to be able to do that and still have the friendship intact was so liberate. Like I felt amazing afterwards. I was like, I, did a hard thing and it worked out okay. Yeah, um, it sounds to me like, you know, you're, you're giving another example of kind of the magic of just narrating your experience. Like, oh, I'm surprised. You know, when they ask you what's going on, why aren't you responding? Your response is, I'm surprised. You must have had a different understanding, right? And that's just an honest reflection of where you were at. That's great, thank you. Okay, um, we've got 35 more minutes at most. I'll try and keep it less than that. And we still need to cover a couple things. So tonight we are gonna give you an overview. I don't know who we is, it's just me here. But one of these nights, we're going to bring in some other voices. Anne might be here next month to talk about sewing. We're going to give you a brief overview of internal family systems. And then we, uh, hopefully by now, you've read the first chapter of Dale Wright's Six Perfections, um, which is on generosity. And I might say something about that. But I also just found out as I was going through archives, a talk that Peg did on chapter one, generosity of this book in 2010. So and it's like 40 minutes long. So if we don't get to that, I might just email you guys the link to that and you can uh, listen to it sometime this month if you're interested in hearing what Peg had to say about that chapter. <clears throat> okay, so internal family systems. So we talked the, for the first class or two about Hakomi, uh, body-centered, psychology or somatic experiencing. And this time we're gonna talk about IFS. And the first question you may have is, um, isn't this a Zen Buddhist class? Why are we talking about internal family systems? <laughs> right, same, same question you could have had about Hakomi. And it goes back to um, what we were talking about at the beginning of the class about kind of the double helix of waking up and growing up. Right, that um, uh, Buddhist practice has always had a focus on awareness, attention, and um, self-reflectiveness, right? But um, maybe it's not nearly as strong in trying to help people understand what you do with those things that you're learning about yourself, right? Because it can, it can start to look like a bit of a scary movie or a horror show. Oh my gosh, look how I'm acting. Oh my gosh, look how I talk about other people. Oh my gosh, look how many lies I tell every week, right? <clears throat> so this is the why. So these, uh, you know, again, this is not therapy. Uh, I'm not a therapist, but we're giving you little tools that we found over the years people find very helpful for 
Um, how do you think about the things you're learning about yourself, right? And what do you do with them? It kind of gives you a little bit of a management toolkit. So that's the why. So this is a good one that uh, a lot of people find very helpful. So internal family systems or IFS, um, it can be especially helpful in working with the precepts. So working with the precepts basically is an exploration of how you meet your world, right? We say that, you know, um, Zen is all meeting, it's all relationship. So these, this work with the precepts begins to strengthen our awareness muscle of how we meet others and how we meet the world. And in doing this, many things will come up. Um, some of them you may not like. So this model helps understand, helps you understand um, what you find and to try and uh, keep you from falling into the ditch of um, beating yourself up. We don't want that, right? So discovering useful information, right? You can whip yourself with it or you can learn, right? And we're looking for the latter. So IFS was developed by uh, Dick Schwartz in the 1980s. He was a highly trained um, psychologist, trained in the family dynamics model. So he worked um, in family dynamics with groups of family members in their interpersonal relationships. That was kind of his field of study. But in particular, he worked with kind of a central figure in each family uh, group, was normally someone who was uh, an eating disorder patient. So that was kind of his specialty. So he was working with eating disorder patients. He did this for many years. And one of the things he started observing is that he could diagnose and um, identify shortcomings in the family dynamics and even get to the point where the family dynamics were starting to repair themselves. But in many cases, the disorder still pers persisted. So there was something that it wasn't doing and he was trying to uh, find something that would uh, be more useful. Right, or, or get at the, uh, the hidden places that were still stuck. And as he went about this work, um, he started noticing people would say things like, um, well, part of me just wants to die. And people would talk about these you know, scary parts of themselves or the part of themselves that wanted to die. And he started to explore this more and more. <clears throat> um, so as he explored these uh, parts with people, eventually he would encounter parts where people would say, oh, well, that's not, that's not a part of me. That's who I really am, right? So they would talk about the part of them that wanted to die, and then they would talk about um, who they really were, right? Or the part that they really were. Uh, not that they, you know, it wasn't always, you know, the other part was good or bad, and the part they really were were good or bad. That flips and flops depending on the personal characteristics and traits, right? But he was very interested in these splintered parts of people. And, th and we're not talking about um, 
extreme cases of this, like delusion. We're not talking about that. And we're not talking about schizophrenia. You know, we're talking about just normal walking around people, folks like ourselves, right? We all kind of can view ourselves as having different aspects, sides, and parts of ourselves, right? And so this is a, a model. And what a model is, is a simplified, not exactly true view of the way something is, but provides us a map of how to navigate, right? So this particular model, it's gonna have a lot of shortcomings. It's not who you really are, but it gives us a little map on how to work with these things that come up. So that's the high level. <clears throat> All right, so the basics here. We're gonna start with um, the principles of IFS. And there's a handout I will send to you after this is over and post to our, our group page. Um, but before we get into that, I'll just say kind of the basics here of uh, IFS in a nutshell, you could say. So IFS in a nutshell, it begins by positing that the mind is made up of multiple parts, right? That we're all made up of multiple parts and that underlying each of these parts is a person's core self or a person's true self, kind of capital S self in, in IFS terminology. And there's just not one or two parts. There can be many parts. There can be many, many parts. And they don't exist in a silo. Um, this is the, goes back to the family dynamics model. This is where the internal family systems come from, right? So we can have a model where we have a whole family of parts of our own personalities that relate to each other in certain ways, right? They pick on each other, that help each other, that strategize, that don't get along, that maybe fight. So this can be viewed as a family system, internal family system. And one, a core tenet of this is that every part has a positive intent. Every part has a positive intent. Even if their actions are counterproductive or dysfunctional or maladaptive, right? <clears throat> Our model is that each part has a positive intent. And IFS's aim is to heal these wounded parts and restore some mental balance to our lives. <clears throat> so the assumptions of the IFS model. Changes, whenever you share, it changes all my little windows of you. I have to get them back. Now I see you. Okay, assumptions of the IFS model. Multiplicity. It is the nature of the mind to be subdivided into an indeterminate number of sub-personalities. Self-leadership, this is the capital S, self. Everyone has a self. Self can and should lead the individual's internal system, right? We want this capital S self driving the bus. We don't want the angry part of us that doesn't like X, Y, Z driving the bus, right? We're not going to ban that part, right? No parts are banished. They all have a positive intent and we're going to work with them, but we don't necessarily want to hand them the keys. <laughs> so positive intention, I already mentioned that one. 
the non-extreme intention of each part is something positive for the individual. That part of you is there because it was trying to fulfill a role. It's either trying to protect you, trying to manage you, trying to serve you, right? They have positive intentions. They just go a little astray, right? And sometimes they need a little course correction. Four, systems. As we develop our parts, develop and form complex systems of interactions among themselves. Systems theory can be applied to the internal system. So hence the name internal family system. When the system is reorganized, parts can change rapidly. So this is good news, right? You may not be your ideal self yet. There's that not yet, but they can change rapidly when you start to meet them in a different way. Transformation. Changes in the internal system will affect changes in the external system and vice versa. The implication of this assumption is both internal and external levels of the system should be addressed. Okay, so we're not, this is not just gonna be a personal experience or experiment that you do with yourself, right? This is you and your world. So we're starting with internally family systems, but your, your external system needs to be addressed as well. At the heart of each part is the self, capital S self of the part, no matter how extreme its role or, its dis or distorted its beliefs. And just a note about capital S self, so large S self, in, Buddha, in Buddhism we would call that your, your boundless Buddha heart mind, right? Bodhicitta, the awakened mind, big mind. There's a similar common connotation here in, in IFS. All parts have self at the center. They carry the burden of the role they've taken on. So we're gonna talk about the different types of parts. They, they grouped them into categories. But each of them has a burden, right? It has a downside of its maladaptive behavior it's taken on to manage your life. The burdens of parts include beliefs, feelings, ideas, behavior, and stories about you, about others, and about the world. So we're gonna to learn to unburden these parts, to help them carry down, let down their burden, to let go a little bit and move more freely. We don't get rid of any part. We get rid of its burdens so that it can return to its preferred role. And then it goes into kind of the goals of the work um, to facilitate a relationship between self and parts, to achieve balance and harmony, release burdens, to differentiate and release self. So to understand when you're in, in that self mind and when you're um, in a part and to allow self energy to express itself unhindered in the external world. All right, so I'm gonna pause for a second, see if there's any quick questions that you need to answer before we go into it a little further. Anything uh, yes. I wanna be able to copy this and I can't do it now. Can you show me how later on? Yes, I'm gonna send you a link to this um, file and then you should be able to print it if you wanna print it or at least bookmark it so you can come back to it. Yeah, thank you.
Okay. So um, these parts that are created, I think I'll, 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 say, well, I'll go on that. I'll go on that in a second. So we'll stop here. So these parts that uh, you know we create and form all throughout our lives. Um, they often happen when something gets missed, right? Often as a child, whether it was something traumatic, right, and, and big, or something small where just, um, you know, the child was missed, the parents didn't see, they weren't listening. Um, and then these parts form a particular belief or view, you know, worldview, like, oh, um, I should never speak up because they don't hear me anyway, right? I'm making things up here as an example, but we can have these little parts of us where in developmental experiences, kind of pivotal moments in our lives, um, a part gets formed by when something was missed or shut down. <clears throat> and so this work is to try and identify those parts and recognize them when they come up and then start to work with them to find out what was missed, what got split off, what got spun off or buried as another part, another belief system, right? And to learn to work with it and then burden it, to bring it back to self-energy. So what is self? Qualities of self-leadership. So this is his little reference to if you're in self, if you're inhabiting that self-leadership, that, that Buddha heart mind, it's going to have the characteristics of these eight C's, right? If you are not feeling these eight C's, then you're probably not operating from big self. You're probably operating from more of a part. So calm, calm, curiosity, compassion, confidence, courage, clarity, connectedness, and creativity. Calm, finding inner stillness in the midst of activity, bringing calm in difficult situations, having a calming presence with others and with our own parts, easing tension, anxiety, anger, and conflict. Often, if you, if you know someone who's a very um, a good example of uh, a spiritual teacher or someone who's done a lot of this opening kind of work, right? As you read this list, I want you to, to think about that person and, and do you see the parallels here, right? Do you see them as, as someone who operates from this way of being? Curiosity, being generally curious about yourself and others instead of becoming upset or judgmental over what other people do or say. Compassion, Recognizing all forms and signs of suffering and not turning away. Seeing behind our own or others' extreme parts to see the fear or pain behind them. Confidence. Trusting that even if other people are upset with you or you make mistakes, you can experience yourself as a good, worthwhile person. Courage. Facing difficulty with equanimity not retreating into some form of escape, denial, or self-soothing. Speaking for your own parts when they're activated and also apologizing to others for the harmful or extreme behavior of your parts. 
speaking for is important. So we'll talk about the difference of the part speaking for, you know, speaking for you. I didn't say that right. Speaking from your part, right? Where the part is speaking, maybe raging, yelling, doing whatever it's doing is one thing. Being in self, calm, curious, compassionate, confident, and speaking for that part to say, I notice I'm feeling very anxious to say, oh, I'm surprised by that. A part of me is really surprised by that, right? That's not speaking from the part. Those examples you guys were giving earlier, those speaking for it, on its behalf, right? You see the difference? Yeah. Clarity. Make, making, maintaining a clear, undistorted view of situations, seeing beyond your own perspective, making skillful use of the capacities and resources available in yourself and in the situation. Connectedness, maintaining open, caring connections with all parts and with all people. So this is the not banishing any parts, right? Not pushing any of them away. We're going to connect with all of them. Not distancing, alienating, distracting, or isolating yourself so that you can be fully present. Not trying to fix or manipulate others in any way. And finally, creativity. Radical openness to possibilities. Embracing spontaneity and improvisation. And cultivating skillful means for expression. Being free to realize creative potential. Embracing wonder. All right, so these are the eight C's, the qualities of self-leadership to help you recognize when you're in that larger S self versus when you're in a part. So there are three types of parts. There are um, exiles, managers, and firefighters. So the exiles. The exiles are the parts we don't know we have or we know we have and we don't want. Right? They're the parts that we can't admit. They're the parts that we push away. They're the parts that we try and hide or that we don't want to look at. Right? They are exiled. We are exiling them. Right? Or they were exiled by others, maybe by our, um, you know, by our parents or parental figures in our youth who saw some aspect of us and condemned it, pushed it away. And we thought, we took that on personally. Oh, that part of me is bad. That's what they said, so it must be true, right? Parts that we don't know we have or don't want, that we can't admit. So often these can represent some psychological trauma, you know, often from childhood. They're parts that become isolated from the other parts. They don't tend to interact with the other parts. They tend to polarize the whole system, dragging it to one extreme or the other. Um, we can view them as dangerous, right? That's why we've exiled them. 
Uh, maybe we exile our anger because we're afraid to be angry. We're afraid we're going to be violent. We're afraid we're going to say something damaging. That's just one example. So exiles have often have this um, component of danger. We're worried this the exile might destroy things. The exile might destroy people around us or our relationship. They might just burn down the whole system. Right? Better keep them locked up and pushed away. That's the exile. Managers. So managers are our, our protectors, our preemptive protective role. They help manage our way through life. They guide how you interact with the world, protecting you from harm, preventing traumatic experiences from flooding your conscious awareness. Right, so a manager kind of helps you manage that exile. They manage the exiles. They keep them at bay. The next group are firefighters. Firefighters emerge when the exiles break out and demand attention. They put the fires out, right? So firefighters, they have one goal. They're rushing in. You know, they don't care if they stomp on cars or break windows or damage things. They just got to put the fire out. They got to manage the situation. They divert attention away from the exiles, hurt and shame. Um, firefighters can lead to impulsive and inappropriate behaviors. Uh, often they can, the firefighter can be like a maladapted behavior, the, devouring the whole half gallon of ice cream. Could be your firefighter drinking overworking. I just need to work harder. I'm just going to pour myself into my work. And so those are the three types of parts. And the, the difference between kind of the, the interaction between parts and self, um, we use the term, they use the term blending, right? Blending, when you're blend with the part, that's when the part takes over. That's when that part is jumped up into the driver's seat in your brain and it has both hands on the wheel. It's the one who's, you know, when you find yourself, whatever, yelling at the grocery store clerk, right? Or, you know, you flipped your lid and, you know, whatever, a part of you has taken over, right? So blending is, is that time where um, your higher self, your large F self with the eight C's is not in control, right? And you notice that, that's, you were blended with a part and that can be your, your uh, enter here sign, as Rosento would say, to, that there's some work that needs to be done or that there's some investigation. You have an opportunity to learn. Oh, I was blended with a part. Uh, what kind of part was that? The parts want us to see through their eyes, right? to believe what they believe. It's often useful to think of this as um, when you have this experience that that's a part asking for help, asking to be seen, asking to be worked with. But all these parts, every part has good intentions. It has good intentions for you. There's no bad parts. There are no parts to be getting rid of. No parts to fix. They're just often um, burdened 
with some particular job that they've been carrying, often for your whole life. And our, our work here is to learn to meet them and see them, to find out what drives them, and help them unburden, help them to put that heavy task down so that self can drive the bus. All parts are helping, but Peg, as Peg likes to say, often they help like three-year-olds help in the kitchen. <laughs> like, but they just make giant messes and it takes you twice as long to do anything, right? So they help like three-year-olds helping in the kitchen, <laughs> right? And so we just kind of have to manage them that way. Like, okay, I know your intention is good, but yelling at the grocery store clerk is not going to get you what you want, right? So let's try a different way. Move over, let me take the wheel. <clears throat> Burdens, our parts carry burdens, which are painful emotions or negative beliefs that they've taken on. They're not intrinsic to the part. It's not, it's not um, who they are. You can release or unburden them. So that's, a, that's the model, right? The model is let's pretend we're made up of parts. Let's pretend we have this big S self. Let's, let's assume they have these qualities and let's try and work with them that way and see how it goes. And often people will find this a useful model for learning about themselves and finding a bit of freedom. So we're almost out of time, but I will send out some um, information on kind of how to go about this work, how to dig into it a bit. And there, in particular, there's a handout here on Zen and internal family systems and working with parts. We won't go through the whole thing here, but it gives you some steps about how to notice a part, how to notice when you're not operating from self, um, how to explore the part to try and find it in feeling tone and in the body, how to bring it more into focus, more into awareness. Um, learn about how you're feeling towards it, right? And often, um, really the model here is, is you work with them just like they're a real separate other person. You, you kind of literally sit down and you have a conversation either out loud or in your head or writing with that part, asking it questions. Um, what is it that you want in this situation? Why do you look at it that way? You know, how do you feel about, you know? So we worked with these parts just like, um, they're a valid other in our own world. And then in the third phase, um, we learn about how it's connected with the other parts, how it relates to the parts, how does the system work? And then there's some um, writing exercises for working with these protectors and managers. So that is your crash course in IFS in about 25 minutes to be followed up with handouts. What are your thoughts on this? What questions do you have? And if anyone has done this work before, um, what do you think about it? I'd like to read through it and then talk about it later, but not tonight. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, it's getting late. Anyone have any questions? Anyone having a horrible adverse reaction? Okay, I, I often did, but now there we go. Thank you. Yeah, I um, I've actually also already experienced this with my own therapist, and I'm going to have to practice meeting this with openness and possibility <laughs> again. <laughs> so they, so they, you're saying you've seen this adverse reaction before? Is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, and my therapist tried this with me. It's just that. Oh, tried IFS with you. Oh yeah, no, yeah, oh. it did. It didn't really work. We had one well, set, and that's okay. And that's okay. It's not. <laughs> a, it's not a requirement for this work. But like I said, we're just trying to give you a few different tools for your tool belt to work with what comes up during this year of the crucifix. Okay then. Well, I know it's late, and uh, you guys sat through here like troopers for two hours straight. So. We will let you get some rest. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me or ping me so throughout the month. I'm happy to, to talk at other times if you'd like. And uh, sometime probably tomorrow, I will get you all these worksheets and information. And next week, so next month, before next month, try and remember to do uh, learning record observations. They're very useful to try and do at least one observation about every week and be very helpful if it's if it involves one of the things we're talking about or one of the precepts and for next month um, read up chapter seven on meeting others on equal ground that will be our next precept thank you very much everyone thank so you good being with you thank you for your openness and willingness.